Our body is very adept at knowing how to prevent us from going into places that are not comfortable. So finding a way to get into that place where you're utterly bored is sometimes the most beautiful way to instigate a new kind of thought process that takes you into a whole new realm that you might not have ever discovered. You are listening to Change Lab, conversations on transformation and creativity. I'm Lauren Buckman, president of Art Center College of Design. Roseanne Summerson is an internationally exhibited furniture designer and president of Rhode Island School of Design. A RISD alum, she sees her work as both leader and practitioner as complementary parts of a creative life. It all began, she says, when she was a young girl charged with describing the world to her blind grandfather and, in her words, to open doors for people to see things differently. Roseanne, who grew up outside of Philadelphia, initially set out to pursue a career in photography at RISD. She changed course after her first year when she discovered her calling to create art in 3D during a woodworking class. After earning her degree in industrial design and establishing a thriving design studio, she began teaching at her alma mater. In 1995, she became chair of the furniture design department, which she helped conceive and establish. The scope of her leadership responsibilities expanded in 2011 when she took on the role of provost. In 2015, the RISD board named her president of the college. I've come to know and deeply respect Roseanne through our time spent together at various meetings and conferences. We've discovered that in addition to leading colleges of art and design on opposite coasts, we also share a conviction that a studio-based immersive making environment is fundamental to fostering and mastering a life of creative practice. As we gathered in Detroit for a recent conference, I seized the opportunity to sit down with Roseanne. We met in a recording studio, converted from an old shipping container, for a conversation exploring some of the most pressing issues facing arts education today. The result was a wide-ranging dialogue as productive and insightful as any I have had on innovation and change, affordability and accessibility, and the enduring and growing value of design thinking in these challenging times. Please enjoy my conversation with Roseanne Summerson. Kind of common beginning podcast question often has to do with somebody's background. Mm-hmm. And you know, I've been able to read a little bit about yours, your discovery about the magic of photography through your brother's darkroom, right? Mm-hmm. You saw the image yeah. appear and, and then you uh, went to RISD thinking you were going to major in photography. That's but, right. right. Ultimately, you decided to pursue wooden furniture. So right. all of those things are great bits of the story. But I'm particularly interested in when I talk to various people I interview, their creative sensibility, their creative spirit as mm-hmm. kids. Mm-hmm. Because it's always really interesting to trace that back to some of the work that they do today. So if you could tell us a little bit about that. Yeah. So I'll start, I think, with an ending and then go backwards, which is that I'm doing photography again now in my furniture. Uh, You know, at a certain stage in your life, you bring things together that were maybe disparate at other points in your life, but fed into the hole that you eventually find later. But now go back to your question. 
I didn't have great art in my school system. I went to public schools. You know, it was decent academics, but not a lot else. You um, grew up in Philadelphia, right? I grew out, up outside of Philadelphia. Outside. So there were great museums. There was great culture. There was great theater. So I was exposed to great art. But in terms of learning how to make art, it wasn't part of my education, so to speak. So I think the real thing that influenced me as a child was the fact that I grew up for a period of time actually sharing a bedroom with my grandfather who was blind. And he had had a seeing eye dog earlier on in his blindness, but as he was elderly, he and my grandmother, who was very infirmed, moved in with us. And I felt it was my personal responsibility to be his eyes. And he was a difficult personality, but he and I clicked. So I would take him to places on walks, to the movies. I remember going to The Sound of Music and whispering the whole movie into his ear very quietly. And so it developed in me, I think, a very acute visual sensibility, how you communicate mm -hmm. visual ideas that someone absolutely cannot see so that they become vivid. And that really became a, a seminal point for me in my own visual learning. When I got to junior high school, we had home economics in those days. And at the time, it was cooking and sewing and running a household. Right. But in eighth grade, I decided I really wanted to take shop. I just was fascinated by making things. And so I went over to the shop teacher, and we had made cream puffs that day. So I took a, I thought I'd sweeten the deal. So I, I took a, a tray of homemade cream puffs over and asked him if it was possible that I could get into the shop class. And he took his thumb, which was quite fat, I remember, and punched it through all of the cream puffs and said, get out of here. Don't you dare ask me a question like that. Wow. And so that was another, I think, seminal moment for me to realize, wait a second, why is this person standing in the way of what something I want to learn? And I think that had a profound effect on my uh, interest in finding ways to get to learning that wasn't easily available for me later on in my career. Wow. I just need to return to this very beautiful story about your grandfather. Was he always blind throughout his life or did it come to him as he aged? It came to him when he was about 40. And my grandfather was a very colorful character. He was a boxer, a fighter. He was a, um, on, a, on a baseball team. The Philadelphia Stars, it was like semi-pro. But when he started boxing, he, he got a lot of head injuries. And the theory is, and I don't know, you know, this was the what we were told was that um, through his boxing, the nerves between his eyes and his brain got dislocated. And that really stayed with me. We used to walk around the house with our eye, my brothers and I, with our eyes closed, like trying to feel things and understand what it was like from his perspective. And when we'd put the food down at dinner, we would make a, a visual clock and we'd say, you know, potatoes at two, meat at six, peas at 10. And, you know, that's how he would know where things were on his plate. And so it was very much a part of this translation of the visual into all these other forms of language. Right. And a deeply creative way to relate to somebody. Yeah. Which makes sense uh, to, you know, sort of go into teaching later on. Uh -huh. not, not that it's the same thing, but there is an impulse to open doors for people to see things differently. Oh, I can imagine. Yeah. yeah. Okay. And so photography takes your imagination. You get to RISD and then... Do you try again without baking the cupcakes? Yeah. So between that, I finished high school a year early, and I decided to take a year off and figure out what I wanted to do. And so I found this ad in a, the back of a New Yorker magazine for a school of creative writing and photography in the middle of nowhere in Denmark. And I decided I had to go. 
um, that that was really what I wanted to do. So, and it was just a summer program. So I, I babysat, I did all this stuff and earned enough money and got some help from my parents to actually go for the summer. And it was a, a school that was eight students in the middle of the country in northern Denmark, and it literally in a thatched roof house with dark rooms. And um, we only had large format cameras. So the smallest camera was a four by five. We had up to eight by tens. We went to the pharmacy in the little town and got the chemicals and made all our own chemicals. So it was super technical. And I loved that aspect of really learning from from the get-go every aspect of making an image. And so I used that photography portfolio to get into RISD. But you didn't stay in photography. I didn't stay there. And, mm. and I think the reason was that I had learned such a high level of technical photography. And when I got there, of course, most students in the beginning classes had not. So it was very rudimentary, and I was really frustrated. And I was feeling really concerned at RISD about my own capabilities because around me were, the, were these stellar artists making, you know, da Vinci figure drawings. And I had never drawn before except the drawings I did for my application. And I remember when I showed my first figure drawing to one of my dorm um, friends. And so I open up my first drawing and she looks at it and she says, she's quiet for a minute. She says, okay, let's start with some orientation. Which is the front of the figure and which is the back of the figure? I mean, it was that bad. Oh, dear. And um, so <laughs> I was looking for some lifeline that would feel like I could do something and not be a total disaster. By the way, by the end of the year, my drawings were on, on par with my classmates. They really taught us how to draw. But at the time, it was a long haul and a lot of yeah, work. Yeah, I hear that yeah. most people can learn how to draw. I mean, Absolutely. Yeah, I'm one who can't, but the, no. I hear that there if, are if most people If you had been with can, me, yeah, you, you and I would have been drawing beautifully <laughs> by the end of the semester. But um, the woodshop smelled familiar because I, you know, we had one sort of in the basement, not at the same caliber. At RISD, they have something called winter session, which is in the middle of the two semesters, and it's a chance to try something new. And at the time, I had heard there was this Danish person teaching in the woodshop. And I thought, well, I um, know Danish. I like Denmark. And so I decided to try the woodshop. So there was a very famous teacher named Tay Frid who taught a lot of the people who are now teaching. And there's, you know, kind of four generations from Tay who went through the apprenticeship system in Denmark and was a phenomenal teacher. And he was actually away for that period. But a Danish friend of his name, Hans Wolf, was teaching the class. And I just it just clicked for me, I think partly because of the Danish, partly because I love the smell of the material, partly because it was so three-dimensional rather than thinking about this flat surface, which was how I was feeling about photography, even though now I would approach it very differently. Was there something about the 3D world that resonated with you in a way that Absolutely. was new? Absolutely. When I got into the 3D world, it was like a natural language for uh -huh. me. Yeah. And a lot of the frustration I, I was yeah. having in other areas um, made much more sense. And I, you know, toward the end of my first semester, my drawing teacher was getting me to understand 
the drawing surface as a three-dimensional surface and, and to work the charcoal and the materials as if you were modeling. And so that was really helping me understand how to draw. But at the same time, we were doing figure modeling in clay. And the minute I got to figure modeling, I could make a perfect figure. I could look at the model and sculpt a figure that was accurate and, you know, had the elegance that I was trying to put into Beautiful. the work. Wow. So that was part of what encouraged me to go into the 3D world of furniture making, which is a lot less fluid and forgiving than clay. It's interesting how we respond to certain environments, right? I mean, with two dimensions and, and drawing, I, I'm completely lost. And yet I can walk into a rehearsal hall and see actors and real people moving around in space. And it comes to me quite naturally yeah. exactly what I want to sculpt, exactly what I want to yeah. draw in that three-dimensional theater world, you know? Yeah, and I feel yeah. um, so fortunate to have been someone that had the opportunity to test certain kinds of um, uh, modes of expression because a lot of young people never get that. And there are so many people that have, I believe anyway, inherent creativity that isn't allowed to flourish that way. So I felt really grateful from my experience, as frustrating as it was, the need to make things and the need to find the right language to express the things that I was curious about drove me much harder than what I saw as my weaknesses. With that now, would you spend a minute or two just on a kind of general sense of your studio practice? I know that you're pretty busy now. I'm not sure how much opportunity you have to go into it. But in the mm -hmm. last several years, what your studio practice has been like, what mm -hmm. you've been focusing on. And then I have very specific questions to ask you about how you go about it sure. and how you make things and so think about I, it. So when I became a president, a lot of – because I had a very active studio life for, you know, for decades. And I had, you know, at one point six full-time employees. I had shows just nonstop and commissions. I was very dedicated along with teaching to really running a very active studio so people said to me when I started to go into administration, how do you feel about giving up your studio practice? And I really didn't frame it that way. I really felt that I had been so lucky in my own career that it was my turn to make those conditions right for the next generation of artists in whatever way it would work now. So for me, it was all connected. And also, as you know, as a designer, how much design is required to actually run an institution, it's complicated. And mm -hmm. there are major challenges and changes and new approaches that need to be integrated into leading anything. And so I found it to be very creative work. So I don't really separate them. But having said that, when I was younger, I think my studio practice was uh, the driving identity piece that made me feel like I was expressing myself. And the teaching and the working um, at, at RISD was really important to me as a balance to that. But I felt like I was proving myself through my studio work and more confidently giving to others in my teaching practice. Now it's almost the reverse. I feel like my studio practice is totally for myself, totally personal. I'm not proving anything to anyone. And I feel much more like the administrative work is the work that is challenging me to really grow and figure things out the way I used to feel about my studio. Hmm. Let's go deeper into the relationship of your studio practice, your life as an artist, and who you are as a teacher. Mm -hmm. I didn't expect actually to teach. I was very happily working full-time in my studio. And my former teacher at RISD asked me if I would come in and teach part-time running the graduate program in furniture design, which was at the time part of industrial design. And again, I was, you know, kind of shocked and said, I don't know anything about teaching. But 
after I had graduated from RISD, in the last year of that period, a new magazine called Fine Woodworking was started. And Tay, as one of the premier teachers, was asked to be a writer um, for Fine Woodworking. But Tay um, had, you know, second language English. And so and he used to have me write all of his letters of reference for all the students. I did a lot of writing for him as his student. So he asked me if I would help him um, write his articles. And so I said, sure. So, you know, I knew his lectures so well that he would start to tell me, you know, tell them about the thing where you put the this and the that. And, this. and I would write it out and read it back to him and, and he would critique it. And then he also had me take all the photographs that went along with them. So I started doing the photography and the writing for his articles. And eventually, by the time at the end of the year, the publishers asked us to do, asked him to do a book. And he asked me if I would do the same process, if I would do all the editing and organization and photography. So I basically was the behind the scenes for the whole first book, which became a very big success, translated into all kinds of languages called Tay Frid Teaches Woodworking. Mm. But that process of going through the whole curriculum that I learned with him was a great anchor for knowing how to teach because it sort of helped me to remember everything that he knew and actually things that I hadn't necessarily picked up when he was teaching them as we started to try and articulate them so clearly that anyone would understand them. My approach to teaching was not about, I have this information and I'm going to impart it to you. It was really about creating the conditions for other people to have the same creative opportunities that I felt I had, even at the beginning. Mm. Okay, so let's hold on to that because I, I want to take the next logical step and say, okay, your work as an artist is your work as a teacher and then your work ultimately as a provost and a president. Mm -hmm. And I'm interested in the connection there, yeah. right? Because for me, it's a profound connection. My creative yeah. life and my work as a college president is very deeply connected. And mm -hmm. I wonder if that's so for you or how it might work for you, if that Absolutely. is Absolutely. I mean, you know, I, I would add some other things to that, too, because, you know, I, I was very involved in raising kids and, you know, helping with elderly parents. And so, you know, I think that I, I used to say to my students when they graduated and I would give a graduation speech that the most important creative process they would ever undertake is that of their own life. And I would talk to them about applying the same creativity that they associated in their sketchbook or in their studio practice with their friendships, with how they made a meal, with how they chose to organize their time, that if you live with that intentionality in everything you do, then you're art and design education flourishes in a much deeper way. And that was always my approach as well. It was just learning through an art and design education gives you a certain lens of perception and experience and communication that is transferable to everything. Right. Totally agree. Let's circle back to your process and some of the ways you do work as an artist. I want to get a kind of deeper sense of that. And I read somewhere, and it might have even been on the RISD site, that you take your inspiration from nature, mm -hmm. but also from interpersonal relationships, mm -hmm. which now that you've told a bit of your story, I understand it a little <laughs> yeah. bit more. But I wanted you to go deeper into the, the sure. latter, particularly, sure. the interpersonal relationships. So I've realized as I've gotten older that um, my idea flow usually happens through some kind of motion, if I'm just sitting at a table and sketching, it's much harder for me to get into new territory than if I'm in motion. So I've learned that walking, or I'm a very avid cyclist, when I'm in motion, my creative ideas come much faster. Physical motion. Physical motion. Kind of freed my senses um, or opened my senses in a new way that helped me to come up with ideas that were 
were very preliminary, but that I could then take back and develop into something really new. And I think in a way, the photography was some way to, to capture and hold on to that early on. But I learned other ways to get at that and use it not so much as the end result or the capture, but more as the point of inspiration. And how does the interpersonal operate? So the interpersonal was based on things like when I was younger in at a different stage of my life, I had a really hard time um, with infertility. And so I had this enormous kind of secret mourning that was always going on. I had a lot of miscarriages and I had a lot of sadness around trying to become a mother. And I would express that in ways that were just helpful for me in my work. But when I eventually succeeded in becoming a mother, I made a piece that was called Mother-Child Cabinet that was about the very precious relationship between mothers and their children. And then I made another one called Father-Child Cabinet, which had different characteristics. And and those were somewhat literal, although I don't think anyone else would necessarily know the things I was sure. talking about. Sure. But that kind of spawned a way of thinking about the way that an object can communicate between the idea and the person who's using it. And a lot of the reason I went into furniture rather than sculpture was I liked the interactivity. I liked the functionality, even if it was just visual functionality or aesthetic functionality. I liked the fact that the pieces would be in someone else's environment and create a kind of physical stance or presence or almost friendship or resonance. And so that mm. became a way of kind of interpersonal communication through the objects. Mm, lovely, lovely. You also, and this may be a complement to or in contrast to the idea of your discovery in motion, which is a really interesting idea, but you also have talked about boredom mm -hmm. and the anxiety that comes with boredom yeah. and the richness of the experience of working through Mm -hmm. that to find something creative. And yeah. I think uh, you and I have had a chance to talk a little bit about my work in discovering the relationship of making and knowing, but mm -hmm. so much of it surrounds artists and designers talking about going into uncertainty, not mm -hmm. having this kind of, you know, preset vision of what it is they're going to make, but going into a place of uncertainty and discovering it as they go along. Mm -hmm. And so I'm interested in how that works for you and how yeah. you make sense of that. Yeah, I never know where I'm going when I start a new idea. And I really notice the difference in this generation of students who are so versatile at multiple tasks at the same time, but less so about really focusing deeply. And um, so I used to do an, a drawing exercise with my students where I'd give them a sequence of drawings that they had to do without leaving the room for a full hour over a certain period of time with certain prompts. And I knew from years of doing the exercise that at a certain point they would get about two-thirds of the way through they would feel like they had all their ideas and they and if they had been alone they would have gotten up they would have checked their email they would have made a cup of tea they would have stretched but they were forced to just for one hour which is not that long stay there and go through the sequence and right after the point you could see it in their bodies you could see them fidgeting and like you know straining and making noises like Ugh. and right at that point the drawings that would come after that were where the breakthroughs were, were the most interesting drawings. And it was about the fact that our body is very adept at knowing how to prevent us from going into places that are not comfortable, right? That's our survival instinct. And as an artist, it's very easy to shut off just before you're actually entering into something which is which you're not good at, which is not familiar. And boredom is an instigator for getting there faster because it's a lack of distraction. It's 
creative people have wonderful imaginations. And if they're bored, their imagination is going to jump in and have a new conversation with you because it's not going to allow you to just wither away, right? So finding a way to get into that place where you're utterly bored (laughs) is sometimes the most beautiful way to instigate a new kind of thought process that takes you into a whole new realm that you might not have ever discovered. And it's a discipline, right? It is a discipline. And it's, you know, people talk about an artistic practice. That's the practice piece. It's practicing over and over again about not leaving that moment when you feel totally like you're going nowhere and just staying there and finding a new a new approach, a new angle, which is what we teach our students, right? Mm-hmm. It's, you know, it's the idea of change the question um, if the answer is not clear. I don't know if you know the novelist Amy Bender, but I spoke to her recently and she actually talks about tying her leg to the desk for a certain <laughs> amount of time, you know, yeah. every single day. That's how she wrote her first novel. I mean, yeah. she went through exactly, you know. Yeah, the, the... and people don't, rec- I mean, people talk, you know, who are non-artists think about the muse and, oh, you're so lucky right, you're right, creative. Right, you know, right. it's not luck. It's hard, hard work. So now to skip back to what we were just talking about, because they also talk about as leaders that we have vision and right <laughs> and that we have a sense of where RISD is going to go and where Art Center is going to go. Mm-hmm. And, but I don't know if that's how we work. Yeah, I, I think I don't know if we work I with vision. I think that's an old model, honestly. I think we have to have vision of again, like teaching, pulling ideas out of a group and aligning those that conversation in a way that it's productive. Mm-hmm. Even if a president had an absolutely magnificent vision and then tried to impose it on a community, it would never work. And, you know, vibrant creative communities are based on the the collective wisdom of the community. So a lot of what being a president is, is in figuring out how to really understand all the different constituencies that you're responsible for and get conversations that are linked across them in ways that are productive for the institution. Right. If right. that's vision, maybe so, but I don't know it's, if it's not vision. a singular it's, vision. It's making a space for people to thrive. That's exactly. for sure. Yeah. yeah. And uh, it's that resonates completely with my experience, too. Yeah. And it was always a very odd kind of feeling when people would ask me, you know, what's your vision for, right. for this institution or that? And, I mean, I had a sense of what I wanted in terms of the success of the students and the thriving yeah. of the place. But the process was going to be a creative one. It was right. going to be about going through some discomfort to get to a place of discovery yeah, as a community. Yeah. Right. I think that there are priorities. I mean, I think you and I share many of the same priorities around access for a broad range of students, right. around uh, inclusive pedagogy, around the notion of really showcasing the importance of art and design in the world to new audiences and new ways and creating new opportunities for partnerships and for our students um, and alumni. Some people would define that as a vision, and I think they're parts of a vision, but it's it's no longer the singular sage at the top. It's, it's just not the way particularly this generation works. This generation of students is so collaborative and draws so much energy from each other. That form of education, that, that kind of master-student education just wouldn't work anymore. Yeah. And to me, what you're talking about, those priorities and those values, your background as an artist, all of that, to me, that's the scaffolding we stand on. Mm -hmm. But we have to reach into really a place of uncertainty and a beautiful, creative place of uncertainty. I mean, I think that's where the discovery happens and open it up for our communities to thrive within that. Yeah. And I think, I think that what drives that 
is curiosity. John Cage, you know, famous quote about he makes music to hear how something sounds. You know, a lot of times I would go into a creative process and even a process, an an administrative process, to test something, to test an idea and just see what it looks like. Because if you know at the start, then you're not doing anything too innovative, right? Mm -hmm. You're You're not making anything new. And it's the same impulse carried out at different scales, but it's this notion of, well, what if what would this look like? And one of the other things about art and design education is the iterative nature of it. It's the idea, you know, the different definition of failure that we all talk about that, you know, failure can often be the greatest success because you have to come at something after something doesn't work with new parameters and new questions. The same thing is true in, in the studio. The same thing is true when you're really trying to figure out how to deal with a, you know, a budget that has some surprises in it. There is this sense of if you're aspiring to do something big and bold five years from now, you have to try a lot of different pathways to get there because just the old standard model of higher ed won't get you there. It, it's too fragile. And to me, that is a very exciting creative enterprise that um, is hardly boring but requires a lot of imagination. You know, I once heard you say, and forgive me if I butcher this, I hope I'm not, (laughs) that innovation comes at the intersection of subject areas. Mm -hmm. And I think you say something like it sleeps there and it's our our Mm -hmm. job to To awaken it. Yeah. There's a book that I read by a woman named Barbara Hurd. And she talks about the fact that life forms between the land and the the swamp is the area between the dry and the wet land. And it's where some of the most complex and interesting life forms live. And I think that's true in bodies of knowledge, that when you look at the crossover between two very distinct bodies of knowledge, there's a resonance that can happen there that brings the best of both that is where a lot of innovation is coming from. Certainly the big move to the sciences and design coming together in new ways is stepping out of this phenomenon. And I do think that there's great opportunity, that there is sleeping creativity there that we can awaken just by bringing the value and the veracity of our individual forms of practice together in ways that are generous and that can influence one another. Yeah, I was going to say, I mean, I think it's a beautiful way to define leadership, and I think it's a really particularly interesting way to think about running an art and design college, right? Yeah. And how we bring those pieces together. Yeah. And also, I think it's interesting to think about teaching, I think, has really changed too. And the, mm. the Absolutely the, does, yeah. The fact that teaching, I believe it used to be simpler. I believe that there was sort of a body of knowledge that one imagined passing on to the next generation. But now the next generation is is hungry for different things than that body of knowledge. So... The whole notion of mastery has changed and what the students would define as masterful is not necessarily what faculty would define as masterful. So in a way, those are two bodies of knowledge that are coming together. There needs to be clear authority about you know, how a classroom works, I guess, or you could argue maybe differently that that's not the case. But it's this intersection between a much more diverse group of students from all over the world coming together with different life experiences and faculty who, in general, have come up through a kind of expertise form of practice and seeing how those things influence each other and making really new, bold steps in pedagogy 
which is, I think, what's happening right now in art and design schools. I absolutely wanted to ask you about teaching and where we're heading with teaching in our schools. And can you give a specific example of what you're thinking about? I remember when I was teaching a graduate seminar 25 years ago with furniture design students, I would give them readings and then they would either make work or, depending on the assignment, uh, find something that they thought would augment the conversation, bring it in, and then they'd write papers about it. And I was three or four weeks into the semester and one of my graduate students said to me, do you know that every single article you've given us is a white man? Mm. This was, you know, 25 years ago, and it hadn't occurred to me. I, you know, I was tr- thinking about the content and not the authors. And I, so I looked at the rest of my syllabus, and I realized that there were some women, but they came much later in the process. And I went home and redid my whole class mm. and just started looking for new, in, new influences and new sources to share with my students. And, you know, I think that's a metaphor for a lot of what's happening in education now. We, we have a very Eurocentric approach to art history, but our students aren't coming right. out of those arenas. And so one of our faculty who's African is asking the question right now, there's programming going on called basically, where is Africa? Where is Africa in the story of high-level education in art and design. And it's a huge continent with unbelievable rich resources of art and design. And where's all that cultural history in the stories that we're telling with our students? And, you know, every region of the world, you could say that about, but some are more neglected than others. You know, we all talk about the fact that we're creating citizens of the world. If we're really doing that, pedagogy has to change dramatically. You know, I'm, I'm curious. In my experience, we, or faculty in particular, can talk about curricular change, mm-hmm. but have a harder time talking about pedagogy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like, teaching is a really tough thing for them to talk about. And yet... That's the core of what we do. Absolutely, yeah. It is a matter of shifting, really thinking about what a learning environment is about and how one creates that and what are the criteria and who gets to decide. And, you know, the students will talk about it from power hierarchies, but I think the faculty would talk about it more from knowledge hierarchies. And bringing those two things together is really what a modern education is about and how much of it is experiential and how much of it is abstract. Right. And you and I would probably talk about it from the point of view of leadership, as we just did, right? And what a teacher does to create a space yeah. for a certain thriving, to move through anxiety, to go into places of uncertainty. Exactly. As opposed to a kind of step, lockstep way of, of learning and, and discovery. Exactly. Yeah. And, you know, the uncertainty piece is what's going to make art and design students succeed so readily. Exactly. because. They know, you know, how to make something from nothing. That's what they do every day. They take a blank sheet of paper, both physically and also metaphorically, and they make something that's never existed before. And if you translate that process into work in any industry right now, that's what is needed. So uh, as, you know, art and design students are doing so well in the world and the, and the places that are reaching out to schools like yours and mine and our peers – to, to hire our students are places that never would have considered hiring a designer at, at that level before. I mean, right. because of that ability to think nimbly and to think in both physical idea space, but also technology, but also problem solving, but also problem framing, you know, all of that that we teach.
So I want to continue talking about some of the challenges and responsibilities we have as leaders of these Mm -hmm. wonderful schools. And I think my first question is, do you think, and RISD may be different, but my experience in the art and design colleges that I've been part of is that change and ironically designing change is a particularly difficult thing for our schools to do. Absolutely. Well, I think that's true of most educational institutions. I, I think so as well, yeah. But, you know, it's surprising to see the resistance to change in, in such a creative environment. Right. And my take on that is that the work that our faculty do, in particular do, the staff to some degree, but particularly the faculty, is so personally driven. It's so They're so good and they're so experienced themselves so that they come at it with a particular expectation and definition of what it is. And when you get you know, hundreds of those in one place, it's very hard to come to a common ground of, in fact, what the institution is or what it represents. I think when people who are so invested in students and teaching are, in a way, forced to resist certain kinds of change because it can be threatening mm-hmm. to what it is that they are passionate about. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, in a very specific way, I do think it's their investment. I think they come from really good intentions. Mm -hmm. They want their students to have all kinds of skills and all kinds of tools and all Mm -hmm. kinds of knowledge. And the default mechanism for that is to build requirements. Right. Exactly. And then you build a a curriculum that is so loaded with requirements that, first of all, it's probably too much to do in the time period that's allotted. To do well. Which is not to do well, which is not fair to students who are paying that kind of tuition. Right. But more than that, it's not a creative way to learn. Exactly. Right? And the, the breeze doesn't blow through the, the learning and the experience. It's all tightened up so much. That's right. And requirements are, in a certain way, I mean, fundamentally, they're, they're needed. But after a certain point, become the most uncreative way to build an education. Yeah. And we're, you know, definitely going through this with, we just are in the process of hopefully approving a strategic plan. And this was a lot of, uh, there are many conversations around this issue of requirements because our model is based on this sort of disciplinary rigor, this deep dive of learning and discipline. And then hopefully the education is solid enough that you can apply it to anything. So it's not restrictive in the sense of you are only a this or a that. But even within that, the students define themselves very differently. They don't define themselves in the way our departments are structured. They would use different nomenclature for what they see as who they are. So they're asking for more space and more access to designing their own education. And we're looking at ways to do that and without really watering down the rigor of what has defined our success, you know, successful alumni. And it's a really challenging prospect. But one of the things that worries me is also creating enough agency for the students to figure this out themselves. You know, parents are really wanting us to prescribe the paths for everything. And one can understand it because, you know, the tuition is so high and they have such high expectations. Obviously, these kids getting into our schools are super talented. They could have made lots of choices. And, you know, they're really looking at the students becoming self-sufficient and that's their goal. Whereas our goal is education. So, of course, we want the students to eventually be able to to be self-sufficient, but it's not the thing you think about in the first year. You think about really formulating a, a brilliant artist, right, or designer or scholar. And those things are somewhat at odds. 
So how do we find the spaces within the structure of a complex institution with requirements, with accreditation, with all the things, with space limitations and very popular classes that still give students the agency to define their own way? You know, Joe Gebbia and Brian Chesky, who started Airbnb, talk about this a lot. When they came out of RISD, if they weren't thinking like designers and problem solvers, they could not have started Airbnb. It wasn't – if we had laid out a path and said, this is how you create a business, they wouldn't have followed it in any way. You know, they created something that was a very unorthodox way to create a business. And they ran into lots of places where they did not know what to do. And part of their – their sense of inquiry was to figure out how to find the expert who could mentor them and guide them. And they did that in all different ways um, across the formation of their business. And that came out of their education, not out of a business path of teaching. So real entrepreneurship is about learning how to navigate the world, how to develop your own ambition and your own ability for small successes that will lead to bigger ones. You know, just to go back to the question I was asking you earlier, a lot of these challenges represent design problems. That's right. And we have trouble applying that to our own institutions. Yeah, absolutely. Those alums of yours who built Airbnb went into uncertainty. They went into Mm -hmm. places they could only discover and ask the questions as they went through the Mm -hmm. process itself. And those were the fundamental skills they learned. Absolutely. And how we create that for our students and how we are able to Make those choices, I think, is... It's key. It is totally key key and really tough. Yeah. Yeah. So here's another tough one, and that is the question of access and affordability Mm -hmm. of the kind of education we offer. And uh, it certainly keeps me up at night, but since Mm -hmm. I'm the one who's asking the question, (laughs) I'll turn it to you first and ask you how how you think about it. And this is the big challenge. This is a big challenge for for schools that are as expensive as ours are to run. You know, we're competing with schools that have endowments. In the billions, right. Yeah, and we don't. And, you know, for our graduate students, we're competing with schools that are giving free rides and we can't. So it's a really big challenge. And there are several fronts on which we're dealing with it. And I think all of us are making great progress. But for me, it's about excellence. It's about the fact that excellence can't be defined in a way that only suits one definition of people. So, you know, if we say we're, we're educating the creative change agents of the future, these have to be individuals who are very broad thinkers. And the best way to get broad thinkers is to diversify who they're learning with and who they're thinking and talking about and how aesthetics are defined and how community is defined and how work is defined. And the fact of a studio-based education is that students learn as much from each other as they do from their faculty. And the more rich range of ideas coming into that studio environment, the better for all. So that's sort of the definition of of excellence. And to get there is incredibly expensive. But we've um, had to put a lot of emphasis on telling the stories of our successful students and getting those who can support students to be inspired to help at a greater level so that we can provide more aid. But it's not just about scholarships. I mean, it's about getting kids in K through 12 settings to understand that how to make a portfolio and that art and design is a pathway. Or even just to get them thinking about it in the first place and aware that this kind of life, this kind of education, this kind of professional future exists at all. Exactly. And then once students get 
to the school, if they don't see any faculty that feel familiar to them, that's going to be a problem. So it's it's from, you know, K through 12 all the way through to how the school is structured, how the policies are structured. You know, we just put in a new system, um, software system, and, you know, we're, we're trying to make some changes in it because it doesn't have the same gender categories that we believe are important in our institution. We've already changed our admission applications to reflect the broad community that we're trying to attract to RISD, that we're trying to be available for to RISD. But so it's at every level. It's policy. It's program. It's pedagogy. It's um, admissions. It's the recruitment. It's just – and it is still financial aid and scholarships. And it's just right. a very right. long haul. And you're right. If you want to talk about great education, we need to move in those directions. But the brick wall, though, is the economic model that it we is. currently have. It is. That's the one that's so hard to penetrate. Yeah, and I'm really proud that I think highly selective schools, art and design schools, and and other liberal arts and other schools are committed to this. I think a substantial number of schools are really um, changing the nature of who gets to enter the gates. And that's not always been the case. You know, even... When I was trying to become a furniture maker, you know, I go back to the thumbs and the cream puffs. <laughs> it was not easy as a woman to actually get into places to buy materials. People didn't take me seriously. And not that that's the same. I know that that's one category of gender. But at the time, I was really the outlier. It's very difficult to have the confidence to just break through and figure out a way to make the things you want to make when you don't have necessarily the role models who are leading the way for you. Yeah, this <laughs> this one is so tough. Yeah. And I hope somewhere there is a way in which, you know, we can awaken the sleeping possibility of mm-hmm. some new kind of economic model because mm-hmm. I do think we're at the end of this one. And yeah. if we really believe, as I think we do, that great education depends on this notion of who has access to it. Mm-hmm. The, the privilege that's baked into our admission system and all the things that are going on today with yeah. the scandals that are involved yeah. in admissions into higher education. I mean, the great innovation, the great creative challenge, I think, is for us to figure out a different model. Absolutely. I think we need to. Yeah, and, and a financial model that is more democratic. Exactly. And all that we've talked about today, the willingness to go into uncertainty, the idea of nimble thinking, the kind of creative possibilities that come through making and engaging. Maybe we're the ones who really need to lead this conversation. Yeah, I think that's right. So I think what I'd like to do to wrap up is just to ask you a question that I ask a lot of my guests, and that has to do with change and how you think about change. And you may know that half the Art Center mission statement is about influencing change. Mm. And I'm always curious about how artists and designers, how leaders talk about the change that they affect in the world and wondered Mm -hmm. how you would talk about that. Yeah, I mean, change is kind of the driver, right? Because um, no one wants to make work that's been made before, right? So I think all of us have this great desire to, I might say, make impact as much as make change, that it's laborious work to do something well in art or design. And so why do it unless it's going to either improve something or inspire something or present some other position or maybe even awe in the world? And 
that's a form of change. Mm. It's a form of, I think, the human drive to be creative beings, not making change because you want something to be different, but making change because you want something to be new. I mean, there is a sense of sometimes we want to correct things that we think could be better. But I think the real driver for change is is newness and the idea of taking everything that you are and everything that you know and all of your capabilities and putting them into something that hasn't existed in the same way before because you were involved in the process. And that's a thrilling kind of yeah. endeavor. Yeah, yeah. Waking it up. Exactly. Yeah. Well, thank you for this time, Roseanne. You're uh, certainly an inspiring colleague and a great friend, and I'm really thank grateful you. to you for... Well, it's been fun talking. Yeah, for yeah. sitting down and doing this. Yeah, yeah. thank you. Change Lab is produced and recorded at Art Center College of Design. I'd like to extend a special thanks to our small but mighty production staff. Producer Christine Spines, co-producer Luis Silva, editor Emily Van Bergen, and post-production supervisor and production consultant Christopher Oland.